have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 52. And if you uh, don't and you're here, or on- online is printed there in the bulletin as well. Let me pray first, and then I'll tell you a little bit of background for this psalm, and then we'll, well then I'll read the psalm. O Lord, we gather together and we hear the birds of the air and we know that you care for them and feed them. They don't flutter around with anxiety, but they trust in you. Father, as we hear your word preached and as we trust in your provisions and your goodness, in your justice and your mercy, will you help us to hear these birds and be reminded of your care for us. Teach us this from your word. Teach us deep things of your salvation applied to us, active in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you do one more thing for me? Will you just double check that the audio is coming through on the, the thing? And I think we should be good from there. The birds are a welcome noise. The dogs sometimes aren't. The kids certainly are, and everybody here knows uh, that uh, we have been a a church from the beginning that's welcomed uh, some noise from kids, and of course, you know, some is helpful to to go out. I've assured everybody here that none of the kids have even been uh, so much as to uh, disturb me in this this whole thing, and so um, especially if you're watching and wondering if you can bring kids, the answer is absolutely yes, and we've got some provisions to to allow for them. for, you know, to go out and still be able to hear the sermon as well. Here. Plenty of distractions. Your mother said you need a mic, but nobody else said, oh wait. Can you hear it if you turn it on? Can yes, you hear it? I suppose I could have done it that way, <laughs> but I chose to not. Trust so the uh, comments of others? You're fine, yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've learned on social media, trusting the comments of others is not <laughs> the good thing to do. No offense, mom. <laughs> You can hear it? Okay, here we go. <laughs> All right. Are we recording? Yeah. Yeah, we're recording. So why pick Psalm 52? This, you'll notice when we read through it, is not a psalm that's on anybody's uh, most read psalms list. The last two psalms we've looked at, Psalm 22 and Psalm 51, have been familiar psalms for those of you who know and use the Psalter last week. 51 was David's famous psalm that he prays after his sin with Bathsheba and his cover-up that included murder and it's his prayer of repentance and and requesting of God for forgiveness and trusting in that forgiveness. It's a psalm that we should at least know of if not commit to memories that we would use it personally. Psalm 22 is another psalm of David where he's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and he's speaking even words that are Jesus' words that apply more to Jesus than his own life, probably. I wanted to keep some continuity. Sometimes I cherry-pick when I go through the Psalms in the summer, and the best of the Psalms, and that's what I've done so far, but there are a lot of Psalms that just seem like they're, they're, they're more mundane, or sometimes they're difficult. Some of the Psalms ask God to bring judgment on other people. It's difficult to pray that. It's difficult to read that. Some of the Psalms seem like they involve events or occasions that we have 
real difficulty identifying with. How do we use a psalm like that? Psalm 52 has a little bit of that. I really wanted to do Psalm 51 and Psalm 53, and so I thought it made sense just to continue through and take one of these psalms up. That's a little bit more difficult to read, Psalm 52, and then next week we'll look at Psalm 53. The beginning of Psalm 52 gives a little bit of context. Some of the psalms, particularly in the second book, five books in the psalms, this is part of the second book, particularly in the second book, a lot of them have some historical markers. They tell us what the context was that David was writing the psalm in. Psalm 22 in book 1, you notice, did not have that. Psalm 51 last week had that. Psalm 53 uh, has uh, just a, a little marker, but not as much historical context. The historical context for Psalm 52 is particularly significant. You can read about it in 1 Samuel Um, 20, 21, 22, that whole section around there gives more context. Here's what the the context says in Psalm 52. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. I'm going to wait for the plane to go over. Now let me give you two words of introduction based on this uh, on this introduction to the psalm. The first is, notice who it's addressed to. To the choir master, a, a mascal, which is another musical term. It's a, it's a psalm, it's a poem. Hebrew poetry reads a little bit different. It's a poem that he's writing to the song master that the song master is then taking and putting to music. It's meant to be sung by others. In other words, it's not just David's psalm. It's a psalm that the people can use and apply to themselves. David, David writes the lyrics. Somebody else writes the music. And everyone can use it, including us. Second thing I'll say is about Doeg, the Edomite, and him coming to the house of Ahimelech. You can go back and read some of that historical context. I was thinking this week about how helpful it might be. Sometimes 1st, 2nd Samuel, some of those historical books are tough to preach through chapter by chapter because sometimes the chapter doesn't have really a, a good gospel lesson contained in it. And it's tough to read through a number of chapters at the same time. I wondered how it would be to preach through a few of the Psalms that connect to the historical context in the order of the historical context. That, that may be something that I do next summer, maybe something I do sooner. But we're probably, many of us are not too familiar. We don't read the historical books all that often. We should read the historical books more. We should read all of the Old Testament more. In fact, I would say that one of the most pressing issues in the North American church, particularly today, is an unfamiliarity with the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is difficult to read at times. Oftentimes, like we talked about last week, it contains not-so-heroic characters that we've tried to make into heroes through our various Sunday school lessons and reading of the Bible in the past. We don't quite know how to find the meaning of the text, and we sometimes struggle to realize and see how that Old Testament, the whole narrative, all of this is helping us, giving us context to understand the salvation that God promises back in Genesis 12 and really all the way back to Genesis uh, 3, that the salvation that he's planned is going to come from 
the descendant of Abraham and Sarah, who he calls in Genesis 12, and that was going to be Jesus. So to see this all in the context of who Jesus is, and we'll look at this a little bit because uh, Peter even picks up on this, 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 some of the themes of this psalm, and in particular some of the narrative of 1 Samuel, and applies it directly to Jesus. Well, let's, uh, let's consider some of this history. Well, who is Doeg? He's an Edomite. Edomites are descendants of Saul. Uh, I mean, of, of Esau. Esau is the brother of Jacob, and you know Esau has the birthright, and he seems to be kind of the good one. And Jacob is a scoundrel in this whole story. The two brothers, Jacob steals Esau's birthright, and salvation ends up coming through the line of Jacob. Jacob is even renamed Israel which is the name of the whole nation they take on, the descendants of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are the people of Israel, not the people, the descendants of Esau. The Edomites are still in the area. They live to the east of of this area, and they interact a lot, and even you see some reconciliation with Saul, and so they're not complete enemies of the people of Israel, but they're also not quite aligned entirely. But that's not really central to the story here. It's not because Saul, uh, Doeg is an Edomite particularly that he acts evilly, though, um, though at times that does happen. Doeg is a high-ranking official under King Saul. King Saul was the king that God anointed, gave to the people of Israel who preceded David. The people cheer for the anointing of Saul. He looks like he's going to be a good king. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He's strong. He looks like a good leader. But he fails at almost every point. One of his greatest failings is though he looks strong, he looks the part, he's constantly fretful, anxious, and jealous. Jealousy might be Saul's greatest Achilles heel. I think many of us can identify with the sin of jealousy or coveting, avarice, wanting what is not ours. We shouldn't see in Saul something that we can't identify with ourselves, but Saul epitomizes this. While Saul is still king, God calls Samuel, one of the chief, if the chief prophet of the time, and Samuel is sent to, to the house of Jesse, who has uh, seven sons, and David is one of the sons. David is chosen by God through Samuel to be the next king of Israel. As the king in waiting, David has a difficult task. Is it saying low battery? If it says it again, let me know. Hit close and then, uh, and then tell me if it says it again. David has a difficult task. By him being anointed king, Saul knows that his own son, Jonathan will not be king. More than that, Saul has a sense that his own kingship is under God's judgment. 
Now this is interesting because early on Saul has reason to praise David. David plays a harp for Saul in his in his uh, in his throne room when he's anxious, perhaps even jealous, and it calms Saul. David, of course, kills Goliath, the champion of the Philistine army, who is uh, who is who is taunting and 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 the. The Philistines threatening to destroy the whole Israelite army. David famously kills Goliath in battle. Champion winning for the Israelites, defeating the other champion. That comes into the story a little bit here. But then things start to turn negatively. And Saul begins to try to kill David. In his throne room, David flees. David runs and finds some shelter among both some prophets and then eventually some priests in a tabernacle to God that is in the town of Nob. And this priest, Ahimelech, is the priest in charge of that tabernacle. And David, don't know quite why he does this the way he does, David tells Ahimelech, that he needs shelter, provision, protection, even weapons. Ahimelech says, we have only the bread that's set there in the tabernacle. Bread of the presence was set there, bread that the people didn't eat. It was meant to symbolize that God was home. When you saw a loaf of bread that was freshly made, you knew one thing in particular about that place. We have a communion table set today for the first time in a while. There's bread there, you can't see it because it's covered. But Bread meant that somebody was home. You didn't have fresh bread if somebody wasn't home. In the temple, in the tabernacle, the bread of the presence was meant to symbolize God was in that place. It wasn't to be eaten by everybody. David knows it's not his, but he's desperate, and so he tells this priest, Ahimelech, he needs some bread. Ahimelech says, okay, you can take the bread. David goes on to say, I'm on a mission from Saul. Again, not sure why. He chooses to deceive Ahimelech, perhaps for his own protect, for Ahimelech's protection. Perhaps David himself is sinning when he says that. The Bible doesn't say uh, what was the exact context. We don't need to speculate as to whether David was sinning in that or not. David goes on further to ask for weaponry, and Ahimelech says, we're not armed. We don't carry armament in the temple here. Priests don't carry arms. But we do have the sword of Goliath. The sword that you acquired in defeating the Philistine. It was kept there at the temple as something of a a monument to God's victory over Goliath. David says, I'll take it. It's probably massive compared to his own body size. David wasn't necessarily small by this point, but he was nothing compared to the size of Goliath. And in an interesting twist, David goes from there to the land of the Philistines, the very people of Goliath, to hide there from the pursuit of Saul. He goes to one of the kings, the chiefs of the Philistines, And he pretends that he is mad when the Philistines recognize that that sword is Saul's sword. And they start to pick up on the fact that this is an Israelite, perhaps even David himself. 
David pretends to be mad. They don't kill him. They treat him a little bit, and he escapes from that as well. But in the meantime, in the meantime, Doeg, Doeg has been on his own mission. Somehow he was at the temple in Nob, and he saw David come and eat the bread of the presence, and he goes back and reports to Saul. I know where David is, or at least I know where he's been. Saul sends uh, emissaries to the priests asking, where is David? And the priests say, I don't know where David is. Eventually Saul himself goes with Doeg with a contingent of his army and Saul says, put all these priests to death and everyone except Doeg says, no, I can't do that. That's These are the people of God. These are unarmed people. It's not just, but Doeg steps up wanting to prove his allegiance, his loyalty, and he says, I'll do it. And he does. He slaughters every one of the priests except for one of uh, Ahimelech's sons named Abiathar. Abiathar goes and repeats, reports this to David. And David writes this psalm. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteousness, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Amen. David begins by addressing the mighty man. An ironic title for Saul, who is quite the opposite of the mighty man. One of the reasons Saul is so jealous of David is because Saul receives some praise for his military victories. But after battle, the people, particularly the women, are singing of the victory and they sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David was the hero. David was known as a true mighty man. And so in perhaps a bit of a taunting fashion, but I don't think we should read this or even the, the, laughing, the laughing language later in a, a, a taunting kind of tone. 
David's making obvious what is, uh, what is clear by saying, you are not a mighty man, though you try to act like a mighty man. You are posturing in a way that is not worthy. You're posturing by your own strength instead of the strength of the one who has put you on this throne. The one who has given you all this power. The one who you can ultimately win no battles without. And Saul is pretty famous, infamous, for going into battle without the blessing of God. One of the keys, again, to reading the Old Testament is understanding that there are many battles. Some are necessary. Some are directed by God, but many are not. Being able to discern the two, the difference between the two, is essential for us understanding when God chooses to use armies to accomplish His purpose and when He doesn't. Let me pause there and just say that the pacifist movement is nothing new. The anarchist dream that if we just had no law and no law enforcement, no armies or no warfare, we could all just get along, has been proven and shattered time and again. And we're revisiting something again in this time and place that was proven particularly in time when C.S. Lewis was writing and others around the time of World War II, in particular World War I, World War II, where the humanist ideal, idea that if we just all could lay down our arms, there would be no more warfare, assumes the wrong starting point, and that is, it assumes that humans are basically good. But the teaching that the Bible gives us is that humans are not basically good. While we may individually have some conscience and some awareness of our moral responsibilities, and many around us do, left to our own devices in humanity, we will bite and devour one another. Our selfish ambition, our pride and our arrogance, even our deceitfulness will try, will, will, will overwhelm, will consume us to the point where warfare will erupt. If you go back all the way to the garden, God made Adam and Eve and he put them in a garden. It was a perfect garden. Just talking this week with some uh, people in the church in a study about the parallels between the Garden of Eden that's portrayed in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and then also uh, chapter 3 in the fall, and then with the promise that we find at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 20, 21, 22, and how that promise fulfilled in that Revelation passage is a perfecting or a return to and even a growth from that perfect garden. And what happens in Saul's pride and arrogance he pursues after, and David reminds us in this psalm, that when we trust in our own strength and our own abilities, it's a path of destruction. It's not truly a mighty man. It is ignoring what is said here, the steadfast love of God endures all of the day. Evil and selfish ambition will win oftentimes for a season, but it has a short shelf life compared to what God's victories provide. 
Some of you may have an NIV translation. Interestingly, it's a little bit of a difficult translation. The second half of this verse, it says in the NIV, Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Trying to smooth over perhaps a little bit of uh, what feels like an opposite, bouncing back and forth. But uh, all the other major translations throughout history have translated this more along the lines of delighting in God's steadfast love. Again, that term, steadfast love, particularly when you see it in the ESV and there are parallel terms in other translations, is a particular Hebrew word and it is a, a ste- it's hesed. It is the true faithfulness of God to His people at all times, even and especially when that love requires mercy to be shown. It is not a conditional love. It is entirely unconditional and by God's choosing. And though we oftentimes fail to reciprocate that love and fail in our own love of God, God reminds us that His steadfast love endures for all the day. And that is essential for somebody like David or like you and me when we are in a situation that seems utterly impossible. David has the king and all of his own people, or at least the majority of his own people, as well as the people of the nation surrounding him, pursuing him in order to kill him. And essentially the only, the only place that he can turn for security is to God. And David does just that in this psalm. In the first few verses, he directs towards Saul to remind both Saul when he hears this, and also himself and other listeners around of the dangers, the dangerous footing that we stand on in trusting our own devices for success. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. Saul's plans, his purposes are deceitful, are for destruction, and his words are full of lies. Full of lies to those around. One pastor friend of mine in this passage challenged His listeners challenges us to consider who the souls are in our lives. It says this could be a person, a former friend, a colleague, a a challenging person or spouse or even child or parent or even some force around us, a cultural force that's pressing in on us personally or us as a church, pressing force from the community. It's helpful to take a step back and identify who those souls are in our life. We don't want to find ourselves in the position that we can't find uh, identification with Saul himself in his pride, his boasting, and even in his deceitfulness. We should be challenged by that to bring us to a point of confession for our own lives. But we also are called in the Psalms to identify with the psalmist himself, especially when the psalmist is in the right. And to realize that there are others who stand against us on a regular basis who would like to silence us, to destroy us, 
particularly with deceitful words, lies that spew out, discerning between truth and lie is probably more difficult today than it ever has been. Lies gain momentum quickly. Pride and deceit are the two hallmark sins that David is calling out against that were true of Saul. A second question this pastor friend asks. Actually, he asks a variation of it. He says, you know, for David in this situation, the problem wasn't ultimately his to fix. One of David's most righteous actions is not bringing the judgment against Saul that Saul deserves. David at multiple times has the opportunity to strike Saul down to kill him. But David also recognizes that it was God who put Saul on the throne. And it's only God who has the power to take him off of it. David has no authority to do so. David's in a position, like many of us are frequently, where we have no power to affect meaningful change in a situation or with, in a relationship with a person that we are at odds with. Maybe it's not as extreme as this situation with David and Saul. But let me morph that question a little bit that, uh, that was asked and say, and say this. Is is the problem, is the Saul that you're facing, and all of us have more than one Saul at various times in our life, is the problem yours to fix? It's probably a more helpful question. What is your role in bringing resolution to the problem? Perhaps you're one of the people who has wronged another person. Do you have opportunity to come and offer words of repentance? of apology? Have you been wronged? And might you be in a difficult position to take a word of admonishment, even exhortation of correcting somebody who has done wrong to you? If your brother has sinned against you, Jesus explains to his disciples, take the matter to go to the the person Bring it to them. In the same way, if you've offended somebody else, Jesus says in another place, go to your brother and confess your sins. So often we leave controversy and problems unresolved because we're not willing to take the difficult step to confront the problem. David, in writing this psalm, perhaps is expressing one of his few outlets to confront the problem, particularly if Saul gets word of this psalm. He is, he is in a responsible manner, not going to Psalm face-to-face, in a responsible manner, calling Saul to repentance. Then David goes on to speak of his trust of God and his judgment. He says, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted 
in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. There are many people who need to hear this message more than any time before. And not just the ones who adamantly stand against God and mock him at any turn. But those of us who have a much more subtle form of this, where we've looked at God in a situation maybe like David's and seen the helplessness of the situation and come to God over and over again and said, God, why will you deliver me from the situation? And we see that we think God has not delivered me from the situation. God must be away, absent. And we've given up on God. We say, well, he's probably out there, but he doesn't listen to my prayers. I'm going to turn to some other solution to my problems. And if you're in that position, that tenuous position, particularly if you're a believer in Jesus and you're feeling like I'm ready to give up on it, this psalm, this psalm is for you to use as medicine to call you back and remind you of the steadfast love of the Lord and how it applied to David and how it applies to you and me. Because God does bring his salvation. He reminds us, of how dangerous a position it is when we trust in our money. For many people out there have spent decades, years, if not decades, building businesses right now. And those businesses have been demolished in a matter of days with the shutting down of coronavirus. God weeps at that sorrow. But he also chooses to use those difficult times in life to remind us to come back to him and to look to him for security, for peace, for protection, for promise, for provision. Especially when we have put ourselves in position or we have gotten to a position where we trust in the money that's in our bank account more than anything else. I tell this story frequently. I haven't told it in a while that one of the most transformative events in my life, and I'll pause for the plane again. Perhaps the most transformative event in my life happened when I left the consulting world, the business world, after a pretty successful 10-year run with a lot of money in my bank account. And we bought a house in St. Louis that required a lot of work. We knew it was a fixer-upper. It took a lot more work than we planned for. We also lived off the savings in St. Louis. And by the end of the uh, a year and a half there and a bunch of work that had to be done, we could see that the money was going to run out before our time was up in St. Louis. It forced me to come to a place where I had to ask myself, God was challenging me to ask, is your trust truly in me or is it in the security of your bank account? I was clearly looking to that bank account and I'll admit that still finances are my biggest anxiety producer, especially now that we're in a different place financially and, uh, and all, of, all of that. That's one example, but what are the places 
What are the places? Maybe it's not financial. Maybe it's in career, vocation security, job security. Maybe it's in relationship security. Maybe it's in uh, the, the, the success of your family, your kids. Are they going to succeed in college, in life? Are they going to leave the faith? There are so many things that can be torn down, uprooted, tear us from our tent that we have little control over ultimately that we look to to be our savior that take our attention off of the promised salvation and provision that God brings in Jesus. Now why do I say in Jesus? Let me read for you a passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. It's kind of an interesting context Peter is talking about the relationship between slaves, or more specifically bond servants, those who have put themselves in some position of debt and are paying off their debt by being uh, slaves, bond servants to some master. It's a difficult concept to reference in the Bible. It's difficult in multiple places, and the the, uh, instruction that you find uh, frequently is, is for slaves to obey their masters. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And you say, how can the Bible speak such words? Why would it condone this practice? Let me say one word first, and we can look at other parts of Scripture. I'm not going to go through the whole argument to know that God never blesses the institution of slavery or commands it or even commends it. But God speaks into certain conditions, cultural situations, and gives helpful instructions on how to engage with those things. Furthermore, Paul, the Apostle Paul, instructs that if a servant or a slave is able to obtain his or her freedom, they should do so. It's good thing. It's a good thing to do. But here's the reasoning that Peter gives for this instruction. He says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Let me pause there and say that those who fight on behalf of those who are enslaved wrongly, It's a bit of a different institution, chattel slavery versus a paying off of debt. It's actually radically different. Fighting against the unjustness, particularly with those who are able to fight against it, who are not the slaves themselves, is a call to Christians. Paul writes a whole letter to a slave owner encouraging him to free one of his slaves who is coming back to him. We need to wipe away some of these false assumptions so that we can see what the beauty is in this passage. He goes on to explain this very clearly and helpfully. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Flogging and beating beating was a regular uh, punishment in those times and uh, some of that is contextual. It's not encouraging a beating for, uh, for those types of sins at all. 
But here's the focus of this passage. For to this you have been called. He's speaking to Christians in particular. Those who have known this steadfast love of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. But it's not just an example. Listen to this. Christ committed no sin. All of us have sinned, by the way. Christ committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Interesting correction to Saul and even David for deceiving himself. David writes another psalm that we'll look at maybe sometime in the future about uh, avoiding deceit. It's a fascinating psalm. Neither was deceit found in Jesus' mouth. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I'm going to pause for just a second, let this plane come over and explain just a couple things from that. If you are able to fight for the freedom of another, you are absolutely called to do so. In fact, what happens here is that Jesus, who is without sin, is enduring suffering so that he might free another. As Christians, that is our first and foremost call in our obedience to Christ, in following in his steps is that we would see our lives as a sacrificial offering for the sake of the salvation of another. That we would be true servants for others. This passage in no way condones the practice of slavery, but rather gives us this radical new identity and and assignment as Christians to pursue justice at our own costly expense because like David and Jesus we know that there is a steadfast love and eternal hope that is far more valuable than anything we can achieve by short term gains that are won by pride selfish ambition deceit or evil against another He concludes this psalm this way, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, maybe you've seen some of the ancient olive trees that are over 2,000 years old. In other words, some of the olive trees that Jesus walked by 
The symbol of an olive tree is longevity, long life, even everlasting life. The greenness, the fruit bearing of that life is the life that is marked out by trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. You see, Jesus has done this for us so that we can make this psalm our own and do it for others. This psalm is not so far removed from us. But we sometimes need help in identifying the right enemies. We sometimes need help in being challenged in our own sinfulness, our pride, our ambition, our deceit. We sometimes need help in being reminded of God's steadfast love in the end of those who seem to prosper by their own wickedness. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is there offering to help us through this psalm and through the whole story of his gospel. He doesn't leave this to ourselves, leave us to ourselves, but that we follow him in those steps. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word and these psalms that are your story and our story. Will you help us to internalize them, to memorize them, to know how to use them in our personal life? Will you help us to pursue justice and to love your mercy? Will you give us hearts of compassion and steadfastness, endurance, long-suffering when we face suffering of various kinds? Will you help us to be truthful to one another? and gracious. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.